So Acts chapter 9, we're going to go through some discussion questions today. I'm going to switch it up a little bit today. Normally, I'll just jump right into the reading and do kind of an expository style reading. And, um, but I want to start by asking these questions of you guys. Because someone has emerged on the scene that is going to be a pivotal role within our movement. And this person has been very militant towards our movement. And this person is often misunderstood, even to this day, by many people and theologians. But his name was Saul, a.k.a. Paul, right? Now, I sent out a link, or Joanne sent it out in the email this week. How many of you saw uh, that link where you could listen to a teaching that I gave a few years back on Paul? It, it's entitled, Paul, False Prophet or Falsely Accused? And we talk about the theology of Paul and how he embraced his Jewish faith even to the day that he died. He embraced his Phariseeism even to the day that he died. And I lay out a case for that within this teaching. And how he was um, pro-Torah, pro-the Jewish faith, pro-customs and traditions of the Jewish faith. Um, and he never abandoned that and started a new religion or, or embraced a new religion. He didn't see himself as, as separating himself from Judaism. He saw himself as accepting the Messiah that's promised by the Jewish scriptures and by, the, by the, the, uh, the covenants given to Israel. But here's some questions we want to start off with. Why is Paul so determined, do you think, to eradicate our movement? Think about this. He, he doesn't, he's not making a lot of money, as far as we know, trying to eradicate the way. Like, why is he, and Bob, I heard you say something. I know what a, Suzanne. When he was Saul and he was persecuting the Christians. He always has been Saul. Yeah. He never changed to Paul. But yes, why, why was he eradicating the way? Because he felt like they were going against uh, the Torah. He felt like they were an anti-Torah movement, perhaps. Yeah, Suzanne? He was on a mission. He felt like he was doing God's will. Right. He felt like he was doing God's will. Yeah, perhaps. Anybody else? Why was Paul working so hard to eradicate the way? As far as we know, did his teacher tell him to do that? No. Who was his teacher? Gamliel, it says he sat at the feet of Gamliel. Gamliel, to this day, is considered one of like the, the main pillars of rabbinic Judaism and is often quoted within all rabbinic texts. And Gamliel says to the Sanhedrin, he says, be careful because if this movement is a movement of man, it will fizzle out. But if it is a movement of God, you might find yourself fighting against God. And what we see, one of his students, Paul, does the exact opposite and fights against this movement doesn't he? For a little bit. Why, why do you think he's going against his own teacher's advice? It's a very perplexing individual, isn't he? Yeah. I always assumed, and I was probably wrong, I always thought he had a spirit of anger in him, and, and, mm. and you know, it, it was all around him. In the Romans, they would have full of hate, and that kind of thing. I, I always assumed he had that, too. Perhaps a spirit of anger. Yeah. I think it's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, he himself speaks to this that he was very zealous of the poor. Mm -hmm. And understanding the poor, it makes it very clear that someone comes speaking another word. Yeah. And they may, because of Phariseeism, would see that as being in opposition to yeah. what is commonly taught in, in uh, whether the, I think it was uh, either Shammai or Halil. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. So he was very zealous for the Torah. And the Torah says that if anyone comes speaking 
and in God's name and is trying to lead the people into idolatry or this or that, um, then he's to be put to death. And so, yeah, I think Paul is is literally interpreting that and saying, you know what, that's 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 my charge basically. That's my accusation against these people. And what's interesting we see about Paul is not only is he going against the authority of his own teacher and and turning his back on his own teacher, so to speak, but he's also going to primarily Sadducean priesthood to acquire letters of authorization to kill the way, to try to eradicate the way. Paul has gone rogue, we could say here, hasn't he? It's interesting. He's very zealous about it. So, Jason, I see your hand up. So I think, in other words, I think we could all agree that Paul had good motives. Paul was not this evil, wicked individual who was just looking to kill innocent men, women, and children. I think Paul was motivated to preserve the purity of his own faith and his own people. And Saul, in mis- I think he misinterpreted the mission and the personhood of Yeshua and got it all wrong. And in that misapplied zeal, did a lot of damage, did he not? Yes. It's a very interesting character. In which the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection, so we would go to them. Yeah, to yeah. To yeah, it caused him to kind of skew his judgment a little bit and go to the Sadduceans uh, for, for help. Is Paul ever quoted in rabbinic literature, do you think? So we've got rabbinic literature. There's volumes and volumes and volumes of, of rabbinic literature out there. You know, it's, it's, there's a big umbrella term we use for it called the Talmud. But within the Talmud, there's the Gemara, there's the Mishnah, there's other rabbinic texts within that, the Midrash. But is Paul ever quoted in any of that? What do you guys think? Here we have a student of the great Gamliel, quoted dozens, if not even hundreds of times, within rabbinic literature. And his own student is never quoted once in rabbinic literature. But what's fascinating is we talked about Paul I think through his efforts to gain, possibly gain notoriety, but to definitely purify and to keep his faith pure, keep the Torah faith pure, he's never quoted in, in, that, in that faith whatsoever, in the ancient texts, is he? But after his switch over to becoming sympathetic and a leader within the way, he ends up being quoted and is responsible for writing 23% of this portion of our Bibles we call the New Testament. And for thousands of years now has been quoted and studied and dissected and named after all around the world. More so, I would say hundreds of times more so than any rabbi has ever been quoted in history. It's interesting, right? But that pivot had to happen before that. So yeah, this is a map of Acts chapter 9. What we're going to see here is Paul is going to start off in Jerusalem. And then he's going to go down to Damascus. And then from there, he's going to run into some problems, isn't he? And I think I have a side-by-side with the reading of Acts 9. So you can kind of follow if you're spatial learning like I am. You'd like to see it on the map. This is it right here. Let's go to Acts 9 and let's read a little bit. And I'll be commenting through here. But go to Acts 9 real quick. 
It says, meanwhile, Shaul, or Saul, was still breathing murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, authorizing him to arrest any people he might find, whether men or women who belong to the way, and to bring them back to Yerushalayim. So apparently he didn't get the memo that they started meeting in First United Methodist Church. No, they're still in the synagogues, aren't they? They don't see themselves anything different than being part of the synagogue system. Verse 3, he was on the road and nearing Damascus when suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you keep persecuting me? Remember that verbiage is interesting there. Sir, who are you? He asked. I am Yeshua and you are persecuting me. But get up and go into the city and you will be told what you have to do. Here it speaks to when you persecute a follower of Yeshua, you're doing damage to, you're persecuting Yeshua himself. It's like the body of Messiah. Even Paul picks up on that later in Ephesians. He says that we are like all different members of the same body, the body of Messiah. Verse 7, the men traveling with him stood speechless. They heard the voice but saw no one. They helped Saul get up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So leading him by the hand, they brought him to Damascus. For three days he remained unable to see. He neither ate nor drank. There was a disciple in Damascus, Hananias, or we could say in Hebrew, Hananya, by, by name. A different one, obviously, than Acts chapter 5. And in a vision, the Lord said to him, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. Now, right there, that phrase is a very loaded phrase. Now, the patriarch said that phrase. It's he naming. It means here I am. I'm ready for the mission that you have before me. And the fact that Luke records that here for us is not lost, you know, on the readers of this text. If they were familiar with the Tanakh and, and the and the the stories of the patriarchs, they would know that when Ananias said he named me, here I am. He's saying a very weighty and very historic phrase. It'd be a fascinating study. We don't have time today, but go back and maybe this week study that phrase and see who all said that and what the context was. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the straight street, to Yehuda's house, and ask for a name, uh, ask for a man from Tarsus named Shaul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming and placing his hands on him to restore his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, many have told me about this man, how much harm he has done to your people in Yerushalayim. And here he has a warrant from the head Kohanim, to arrest everyone who calls on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, because this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name to the Gentiles, even to their kings and to the sons of Israel as well. For I myself will show him how much he will have to suffer on account of my name. Now, this is going to be, end up being a fulfillment of Isaiah 49.6. We studied that in Hebrew class this morning. Isaiah 49.6, if you want to turn there real quick. Isaiah 49.6 basically is saying it's too small of a matter that I should regather the sons of Jacob and the house of Israel. But I will make you as like a light for the nations. So that my Yeshua, my Yeshua T, we studied in Hebrew class this morning, 
it will go to the, what was the word? Kates Haaretz. It will go to the end of the earth. That's Isaiah 49, 6. So what, what the Lord is saying here to Ananias is like, this guy is the linchpin for the fulfillment of what I promised in Isaiah 49, 6. I need this guy. This guy is extremely qualified for what I need to accomplish. Let's go through some of Paul's qualifications. Number one, he's a Pharisee. Why is that a qualification? That you think that you might be like a stumbling block? Because sometimes Pharisee has become synonymous with hypocrite. Pharisees were missionaries. They traveled land and sea to make converts. They were very missional people. So Paul was probably used to traveling. He grew up in a port town anyway, so he was used to being a seafarer. But very missional individuals. He spoke Greek. All of the Greco-Roman world was united by their language and the Greek language. That's going to get him places. He's a Roman citizen. If Paul wants to step foot into some of these port towns or go into some of these places or walk up on top of Mars Hill, or the fact that he is a Roman citizen is going to automatically grant him credibility in some of these places. And also is what the ticket that gets him to Caesar, isn't it? Remember, he pleads his Roman citizenship later, and that gets him to Caesar. And then he ends up testifying before the leader of the known world. He's knowledgeable of scripture. So as he's walking into a synagogue and he's about to drop a bombshell on them that Yeshua of Nazareth is the promised Messiah of Israel, guess what? He doesn't have a New Testament to go through and read the Gospels and do all this. How is he going to prove that? How is he going to debate with them like he did with the Bereans? From the Old Testament, from the Tanakh, from the prophets. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. That knowledge of Scripture is going to come in handy. He's a Jew, right? Salvation is for the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. But also this being a Jew, being a Pharisee, sitting at the feet of Gamaliel. Picture this. Walking into a synagogue in the far reaches of the Roman Empire, let's say Ephesus. Do you guys hear who's in town this week? You hear who's going to be there at the synagogue this Shabbat? It's a Pharisee. He's a student of the great Gamaliel. He came from Jerusalem. He's here this week. Come here. He's going to teach us this week. He's going to read from the Torah. And then he's going to explain these things. Can you imagine the notoriety as he walks into a room, as he walks into a synagogue that he would have automatically? And then lastly, he grew up in Tarsus, which is a port town. Paul is used to walking around in a city that is a port town. And when you go to port towns, there's all kinds of stuff. There's idolatry. There's all kinds of paganism. There's all kinds of ideas floating around different languages. Paul grew up and was immersed in that. So for him to walk into some of these port towns and to see that, it's not going to really throw him off and catch him off guard. It's just going to be like, okay, this is, I'm used to this. So I'm kind of accustomed to, to being different and holy in a place that is just full of idolatry and all kinds of debauchery. Paul is extremely qualified. Let's talk about how much he's going to have to suffer. Now, where can we find all this information where he has to suffer about his name? If we can fast forward, Paul is going to very conveniently make us a list of all the suffering he had to go through. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 real fast for me. 2 Corinthians 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11, and look with me at verse 21. This, let's go to verse 21. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 21. 
And I'm going to start in the middle of the verse. He says, but if anyone dares to boast about something, I'm talking like a fool. I am just as daring. Are they Hebrew speakers? Anybody in the room a Hebrew speaker? So am I. Are they servants of Israel? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of the Messiah? I'm talking like a madman, he says. I'm a better one. I've worked much harder. I've been imprisoned more times. I've suffered more beatings. Been near death over and over. Five times I received 40 lashes minus one. Gosh from the Jews, from his own people. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. And in, many, in my many travels, I have been exposed to the danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in cities, Danger in the desert, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. That's a danger right there. I have toiled and endured hardship, often not had enough sleep. I've been hungry and thirsty, frequently gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides these external matters, there is the daily pressure of my anxious concern for all of the congregations. Think about that. That's on the forefront of this guy's mind is the daily concern of all the congregations. Who is weak without my share in his weakness? Who falls into sin without my burning inside? If I must boast, I will boast about things that show how weak I am. God the Father, the Lord Yeshua, blessed be he forever, knows that I am not lying. Because when I was in Damascus, the governor under King Aretas had the city of Damascus guarded in order to arrest me. But I was lowered in a basket through an opening of the wall and escaped his clutches. This guy has suffered, right? So when Yeshua says here, he must suffer on account of my name, he ain't lying. If I experienced just a fraction of that, I don't know what I would do. Paul is a changed man. He's about to be. Let's go to verse 17. So Ananias left and went into the house. Placing his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Yeshua, the one who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, something like scales fell away from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And he got up and he was immersed. And then he ate some food and he regained his strength. Now, I'm going to submit something here. I've been thinking about it all week. And I, I, I think I'm on to something, and I say this, that this could be, this moment right here in our movement could be the greatest post-resurrection and ascension moment for our movement. Think about that. Since the resurrection and ascension of Yeshua, I think this could be the greatest moment of our movement. Saul spent some days with the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he began proclaiming in the synagogues that Yeshua is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. They asked, isn't this the man who in Yerushalayim has been trying to destroy the people who call on his name? In fact, isn't that why he came here, to arrest them and to bring them back to the head priests? 
But Saul was being filled with more and more power and was creating an uproar among the Jews living in Damascus with his proofs that Yeshua is the Messiah. What do you, what would you, how would you prove he's the Messiah? Could you do it? Remember, he doesn't have this thing called the New Testament. So quite some time later, the non-believing Jews gathered together and made plans to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to do away with him. But under the cover of night, his disciples took him and let him down over the city wall, lowering him in a basket. On reaching Yerushalayim, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. They didn't believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas, Barnaba, Barnaba means the son of the prophet. We could also translate this to be the encourager. The encourager got a hold of him and took him to the emissaries. Now, we're going to see Barnabas a lot more in this story. He just now came on the scene. We're going to see a ton of him. And we're going to see how he serves Paul as an encourager time and time again. And he's going to be a very pivotal role in our movement. He told them how Saul had seen the Lord while traveling, that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus Saul had spoken out boldly in the name of Yeshua. So he remained with him and went all over Yerushalayim, continuing to speak out boldly in the name of the Lord. Now let's pause here because what is left out of here is the fact, if we look at Galatians 1, that there's three years, at least three years, and some people say even upwards of 10 to 13 years, in between Paul fleeing Damascus and going to Jerusalem to meet with the brothers there. So he remained with them a little while and went over to Jerusalem, continuing to speak boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Greek-speaking Jews, but they began making attempts to kill him. When the brothers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. And you can see there uh, on the, the, um, the map here, Tarsus is way up north. This is his hometown here. So he experiences an uh, encounter with Yeshua here. He loses his sight. He goes to Jerusalem, then realizes it is not safe here. The brothers sneak him away to Caesarea, and then they go. he flees to Tarsus. Now, from there, that's where we get either three years, a minimum of three years, we're talking about, that he's going to be in hiding at this point. But some would even say 10 to 13 years that he completely drops off the radar. Interesting, right? But if you look at Galatians 1, he talks about that. He, he calls it Arabia, where he goes to Arabia for three years. But it might even be upwards of 10 to 13 years that he, before he finally reemerges and begins his public ministry. Yes, yeah, and we're going to talk about that, why that's important. So verse 31, then the Messianic community, or the Ecclesia, we would say in Greek, throughout Yehuda and the Galil and Shamron enjoyed peace and was built up. They lived in the fear of the Lord with the counsel of the Holy Spirit, and their numbers kept multiplying. So right here, you see Luke says they kept multiplying. That sounds familiar, right? He has said that in the past, hasn't he? What Luke is doing, this is the third of seven phrases that we're going to see like that in the book of Acts. Luke is transitioning. And I think this might be a better place to put a chapter marker right here. You know, if I were putting the, Luke didn't, Luke wasn't in charge of putting the chapter markers in there. But if, if I were the guy doing that, I would put one there. Luke is saying it's time to transition onto a different narrative now. 
And he's ending this era, and he's going to start a new one right after this. But we're going to we're going to go ahead and do that. But it's this is the third of seven phrases like this in the in the, in the book of Acts. So now we're going to switch back to Kepha to Peter, as Peter traveled around the countryside. Now let's pause there because I always thought for the longest time that Peter and John and James, these guys were just held up in Jerusalem and they never left Jerusalem. And from there they just issued edicts and settled disputes, and that's where they governed the way. That's not true. If you look at 1 Corinthians 9, you don't have to go there right away, but 1 Corinthians 9, it actually describes Peter as being an extensive traveler and evangelist for the way. And he actually traveled, him and some other disciples of Yeshua, with their believing wives. But he says he was traveling around the countryside. He came down to the believers in Lud, and there he found a, name, a man named Aeneas who had been uh, bedridden for eight years because he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Yeshua the Messiah is healing you. Get up and make your bed. Everyone living in Lud and the Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Now in Jaffa, or Yafo, there was a man named, or sorry, there was a Talmidah, a, a female disciple named Tavita. Now, Jaffa is kind of directly west of Jerusalem, right here on the coast. And it is south of what is modern day Tel Aviv. Um, you know, to drive from Tel Aviv to, to Jaffa would be, you know, maybe like a 20, 30 minute drive. And then further north of that is Caesarea. So Jaffa is right down here. Jaffa is an ancient port town as well. And we're going to see, um, they're going to hang out here in Jaffa for a little bit. But this uh, Tabitha or Tavita, which her name means gazelle, her name also um, can mean like the number eight. She was also doing sedaka in other good deeds, like charity. It happened that just at that time, she took sick and died. And after washing her, they laid her in a room upstairs. Lud is near Yafo. And the, the Talmudim, the disciples, had heard that Kepha was there. So they sent two men to him and urged him, please come to us without delay. So Kepha got up and went with them. When he arrived, they laid him into the upstairs room. And all the widows stood by him, sobbing and showing all the dresses and coats that Tabitha had made while she was still with him. But Kepha does this interesting thing. He says he puts them outside. This is exactly what Yeshua does in Mark chapter 5 with J uh, Jairus, the synagogue leaders. Uh, and, and remember, his daughter dies. And he says he puts everyone else outside. It's also what Elijah and Elisha do um, before praying for a woman. It's like the symbol of like removing disbelief or removing doubt out of the room. And he knelt down and he prayed. Then turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and on seeing Kepha, she sat up. He offered her his hand and helped her to her feet. Then, calling the believers and the widows, he presented her to them alive. This became known all over Yafo, and many people put their trust in the Lord. Kepha stayed on in Yafo for some time with a man named Shimon, a leather tanner. So it's interesting, as it becomes more and more evident that the gospel message is ethnically universal and applicable, we're going to see from this point forward, this question emerges. What do we do with the Gentiles? It seems to be more and more non-Jews are coming to the faith and accepting the gospel of the kingdom and want to be followers of the way and followers of the Messiah of Israel. What do we do with them? We're going to see that question emerge just next week 
in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. But I wanted to do sort of a comparative analysis between Jonah, this Old Testament Tanakh character, and Paul. And as we develop this, you're going to see there's something very interesting and striking about these two characters. And this is, uh, Stacey and I were talking about this around the dinner table, and it was her idea, so I just stole it. I married a smart woman, and... But let me get you, let me let me start you off. Can I do that? Let me let me show you what I'm looking for here. Paul and Jonah. Both of them were traveling, and both of them were incapacitated. We could say, for how long? Yeah. Why? Jonah was in the whale, but why were they incapacitated? What was the reasoning behind that? Yeah, because of disobedience. Yeah, right. God told Jonah, "Go to Nineveh and tell them to repent." And what does he tell Paul? Don't fight against this movement. Right? And you're, he, here he is, he's finding himself fighting against this movement and trying to imprison and maybe even kill members of the way. And he becomes incapacitated for three days. And oddly enough, I don't know if there's a connection. Stacey was reading a study that talked about how you know Jonah was swallowed by a big fish or a whale. But what falls off of Paul's eyes? Scales. Something like scales. Yeah, it's interesting. Right? Any other thoughts you guys have? That's kind of what I'm looking for. Anything? Yeah, Jason. Yeah, they're in the dark. Yeah, Mary. Um, I believe they both were going to Gentiles. Yeah, they both they both right. become both become uh, witnesses, we could say, to Gentiles. Good. And uh, Jonah was hoping that God would literally like fry the. Yeah, yeah, perhaps, yeah. Yeah, Michael. Um, Jonah was going to Tarsus and Paul was from Tarsus. There you go, yeah. So there's a Tarsus. Remember, Jonah was running away from this call. Where was he running away to? Tarsus. And where did Paul come from? Tarsus. And then he had to go back into hiding there. Yeah, you got one. Yes. Yeah. And Jonah said, and was bemoaning the fact that the Lord had rain fire down on them. <laughs> yeah. So, God had a heart of passion and would save them. He was sad about that. Both, we can say, both had heart issues. Both had uh, kind of this bitterness towards the people um, that they were sent to. Um, what happens in the end? With each of these men's lives. They do God's will. Yeah, they do God's will. Radically, but radically changed. Yeah, there's like a seizing. Is it I for E? Seizing of their wills. Right? 
Are there any differences? Jonah was still, yeah. Jonah still had that heart issue, didn't he? Paul, on the other hand, he saw the bigger picture. And he said, no, if the acceptance of the message by the Gentiles means reconciliation for the world, what will the acceptance of my people be? It'll be like light from the dead. Paul embraces that call. Whereas Jonah is still kind of a little bit, ah, great, they repented. Ah. Now I look like a jerk. Right? I knew that would happen. <laughs> yeah. Right? He throws this kind of like pity party. But then Paul is like, I I have I am weak in the in in you know in the faith of Messiah. All these things that I have done in my past are nothing compared to the suffering of Messiah. You see the difference in the heart. Anything else you guys see? Yeah, Ian. One of them's from the Old Testament and the other one is from Yeah, yeah. You can kind of see them as it's a very good observation. You can see them as like bookends to each other almost, right? Anything else? Yeah, Stacy. Um, I just thought uh, Jonah uh, goes down to Joppa where he boards the ship, so that's another city tie, right? Yeah, there's a Jonah and Paul. There's something going on in Jaffa, which is like a port town. Anything else? Yeah, Patrick. They both had to do, deal with scales. They both had to deal with scales, yeah. Yeah. You're a little. Johnny come lately on that joke? No. <laughs> I could smell the corn from back here. And there's some corniness of that one. I'm picking on you. Yeah, Karen. How about similar trials? Like, I mean, like, you know, shipwrecks and persecution yes. afterwards. Yeah, they seem to have this shipwreck thing in common, don't they? In like stormy weather, it seems like God finds them on a ship, surrounded by water, and the people on the boat are oftentimes like, "Who made God angry?" <laughs> right? Yeah, Brian. All right, I'm gonna go back and hit on Jason's comment, and also uh, seizing on the wills. Uh, they were put in a place where they had to call out to God, mm. pray. Yeah. We could say they became desperate. Yeah, like everything that they thought they could trust and believe in and hide from was ripped out from under them, right? Yeah, OJ. The difference is that we hear about Jonah for that incident and never again, but Paul is just filled throughout. Yeah, yeah. Paul becomes a legend, doesn't he? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Anybody else? Those are really good observations? Cool. Well, there's lots of studies and stuff you can find online that, that go even further into some of the comparative analysis and you know showing the differences and the similarities. But yet, Paul can very much be seen as almost like this anti-Jonah, this Jonah 2.0, you could say, that kind of gets it right. He does what he's called to do, but then has this regenerative heart towards it. I think it's really interesting. But Paul, for me, represents misapplied zeal and the dangers of it. Have you guys ever been really zealous for something and it wasn't a good thing? Or maybe it was a good thing, but you misapplied that zeal and you did a lot of damage. I've been in both situations. One of those situations was when 
Stacy and I were newly married, maybe just a couple of years, and I was very zealous about trying to start a music career and being a singer and songwriter. I had a band that would accompany me, and I was playing at these venues that were very unholy venues. A lot of times they'd be like bars or different venues that offered, you know, all kinds of different alcohol. There'd be drug usage and things going on. And I, you know, some of these places paid very well though. And it, for me, felt like if I go to these places and I make some more fans or something, that'll level me up in terms of my music and the exposure of my music to more people. And um, one of these places I was playing in, in Central Florida, we played frequently, was a bar that had a stage. It was primarily a bar that could accommodate a few hundred people, and then it had a stage, it was a, like a musically themed bar in Central Florida. And uh, we played there many times, like I said, and we got invited to play. It was a very well-paying gig. I would make uh, a few hundred dollars um, just from playing a little bit of music, you know, and um, sometimes much more than that. And basically we got paid a percentage of what, how much alcohol people drank in the room. Think about that. So I was encouraging people to, to basically get drunk, spend their money, which they probably didn't even have, so that we could make money to buy better band equipment or pay for studio time or whatever. And we played there many times and we were scheduled to play there and uh, we were looking into, Stacey was really researching this idea of the Sabbath and what the Sabbath is and when it is and how do we observe it and these things. And she was coming to me with this information. I kept shrugging off, shrugging off. But I was, I was the zeal for my music was overclouding and overshadowing my, my desire to please God with my obedience. Finally, I came around, I was like, okay, I'll do this Sabbath thing. You know, when is it, whatever. And, and she's like, it's Friday night to Saturday night. And I was like, wait a second. This coming Friday night, we have a show at Jesse's. And it's a really good show. It's a really well-paying show. And I was like, man, I just fell under conviction. And my zeal had to be crushed in that moment. And, you know, some of you have heard this story before. And I, I call the, the promoter up and I say, I'm going to have to cancel. And I go to my band and I say, I'm going to have to cancel because I'm observing the Sabbath. And they're like, this. Black Sabbath, you know, like the band. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Black Sabbath is not coming through town. I'm observing the biblical Sabbath, you know, and resting. And uh, so the organizer found a band to fill in for us last minute that we knew well, we were friends with, and we had played with on numerous occasions. And um, in this this bar, in the back alley behind this bar, it was kind of in a downtown area. There was a little alleyway where we would take a break in between playing songs and go back there, and we would just rest or whatever and talk and um, it, we did that many times. And so this band that was filling in for us was back in that alley and they were doing the same exact thing that we would have been doing that night, except someone came up out of the shadows and put a gun to their bass player's head and said, I want all of your money and your wallets and your phones and just robbed them all blind. And uh, so they handed it all over and uh, then they shot and killed the bass player of that band. And it came out, and then he was like a fugitive. They never—I don't know if they ever found the guy or not—but that was one of our friends that you know was there. And, and it came out in the newspaper. I remember seeing a story about it. And I was thinking, man, and it all just kind of like flooded back to me. I was like, wow, if if I allowed my zeal for my music and and doing that and trying to get just a little bit more exposure for that, if I allowed that just one more week to overshadow my desire to be holy and obedient to God's word the story would have been vastly different, right? Someone in our band 
would not have gone home that night. It's amazing to think about that, but it took, you know, a godly wife, but also just the Holy Spirit convicting me to say, stop and rest and do things that are holy these 24 hours. But have you ever had misapplied zeal? It's <laughs> a rhetorical question, maybe. What did it take to snap you out of it? Think about it. Like Paul, maybe. You know, did you have a Damascus Road experience? You know, you may not have gone blind for three days, but you know, it's a painful process, isn't it? That you are dead set on doing this and following that, or preaching that, or teaching this, and suddenly there's a pivot that has to happen. And sometimes if you're someone like me that is just a knucklehead, it takes someone just whacking me upside of the head. Otherwise, I'm just going to like push through, push through. You know, I'm just stubborn, you know. But yeah, we have to be people that have zeal for the things that are godly. Zeal for the things that, you know, we have to be people that are zeal for the gospel in a humble way. Zeal for Yeshua. And we see that Paul is going to start filling up his life and filling up his calendar, filling up his letters with nothing but how Yeshua's grace saved him. And he's going to talk about how if it were not for him, he would be lost and without hope. If it were not for him, you Gentiles would be lost and without hope. Paul is going to be obsessed and zealous for the kingdom of Yeshua at this point forward. And I hope you guys are as well. Some lessons I extracted from the book of Acts in chapter number 9 is that sometimes God must crush our sense of pride or achievement before turning us into a vehicle of his will. Secondly, I learned that Paul didn't jump directly into public ministry. He didn't just right away start a YouTube channel and start cranking out videos. But no, he required a period of reassessing and learning. And we learned this in Galatians 1, verses 11 through 20. Why is this, do you think? I mean, this guy was like the creme de la creme of Torah scholars of his day. If he had kept going in that direction, he would be quoted all over rabbinic literature right now. So why didn't the way just be like, oh, oh yeah, Paul, the student of Gambia? Yeah, send me, send me a link to his teachings. I'd like to see them. Yeah, let's just put them up there. Yeah, let's, like, next Shabbat. You want to get up and teach next Shabbat? You want to teach? You know, why did he require, why did they almost demand from him that time of like, hey, we're going to keep you at arm's length? Why is that? Is that good? Is that Susan? Well, two reasons. First of all, a certain amount of trust that had to be earned because this is the man that had been putting to death the believers and they first mm -hmm. hear of him, they are in horror of him. Yeah. So he needed time to gain some credence with the people. Yeah. But also, you're talking about a major paradigm shift. Mm -hmm. This is not an overnight thing. Yeah. Um, anyone. I mean, he's going full circle to the killing all these people and now he's wanting to win people to God through this yeah. movement. So yeah, that's a huge paradigm. Huge paradigm shift. Yeah, and it takes time to kind of reassess and reevaluate what you believed and what you taught and how you acted. Sure, Brian. Uh, I think he needed that time to get rooted and grounded in yeah. Yeshua because I mean, we see it in our world today. Rock stars, movie stars, they get saved Yeah. You know, they're, they're pushing and pushing, and they end up rejecting yeah. 
and they profane God's name because of that. Very good point, yeah. And do you think Paul grappled with shame? Think about it. This guy is responsible for the death of innocent men, women, and children. Definitely the imprisonment, but possibly even the death of many men, women, and children. Innocent. Do you think he grappled with that? Do you think it would be ill-advised for him to jump right up behind the, the, the pulpit and start preaching the gospel without fully dealing with that shame and repenting of those dead works? Perhaps. Yeah, Karen. He never walked with Jesus. I mean, he never walked with Yeshua. Mm-hmm. And that's tricky, right? Because he can't he couldn't just go to the Doug Christian bookstore and get, you know, the ESV study Bible. Um, how did he learn about the teachings of this this Messiah that he met on the road? And that, that kind of stuff takes time, you know. I don't know the answer to that, but it, it would have taken a lot of time to kind of, you know, ascertain all that in the nature of it. So let's go to Michael and Xavier and, and then Jackie. Michael. Yeah, he had to deconstruct and kind of like put back together and leave some parts out, perhaps. Yeah. And he's eating. Yeah, as to the how, I think in his writings, <laughs> he seems to indicate that the Spirit directly taught him. Like, yeah. he, he didn't really go to others first. Yeah. First, he wouldn't be taught by God. And the second thing is, like, I think it's just like the Torah lays out a principle for trees. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's the fourth year. Yeah, before you can eat the fruit of the trees. Yeah. yeah. It actually calls them uncircumcised. It calls the trees orla, uncircumcised. So, yeah, so perhaps maybe he has to sit out on the sideline and, and kind of, yeah, like you said, be taught by the Spirit, learn, maybe hearing people who are coming to him and giving him eyewitness accounts of what things that would have happened during Yeshua's ministry. So definitely, thank you. Jackie. Well, I think he also just started with the scriptures all over and Yeah. Yeah. So, and then there's also the, the level of skepticism that our leaders had, you know, towards him. Can you imagine if the leader of ISIS uh, walked in the room, in the back of the room, and, and we recognized him, and he's like, no, no, I'm a born-again born believer of Yeshua. Or Osama bin Laden comes out, that he's born again. Like, you know, people would, automatically, people would say, that's great, but, you know, if people do that with Kanye West, let alone with, like, you know, someone who was actually torturing and killing and imprisoning followers of Christ, right? How much more so would we keep them at arm's length at first and say, well, let me watch this guy and see what this guy's fruit is. So I want to warn you guys. I know the, the stuff is going out here. I want to warn you guys, though. Have that level of prudence and discernment when it comes to picking someone on the Internet. Because you don't know where they've been. You can't really observe their fruit. 
you don't know how monetized their videos are, whatever the case may be. Be very cautious and prudent when it comes to that, just like we were when it came to accepting Paul. But like I said, if they see that you see the fruit, if you see that they're suffering for the name of Messiah, there's probably something to that. They're probably legitimate. What did I miss? What did you guys learn from Acts chapter 9 that you can apply to your lives and walk out of this room and say that this challenged me, this strengthened me, this encouraged me, this convicted me? Anything? Oh, I covered everything. I see one hand. Yeah, go ahead. Well, you focused on Paul. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And how he went against his grain, went against what he really felt was yeah. to go speak to this guy. He was like, are you crazy? <laughs> so he obeyed in the face of fear. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's something that we can glean from that is to Absolutely. obey yeah. in the face of fear. That's a very good point. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, Bob. You were uh, asking about It just seems evident to Bob now, reading it, that he came to a very deep understanding of all that, that Christ had to suffer for our sake and, and embrace that. Yeah. Good. Jason? I think it's something, I think we're, it, it's difficult for all of us to say this and because we want truth, but it's like the intersection of the, the truth, the Torah, the spirit, and experience. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we, we want to throw out experience. Yeah. That's a very valid point. And what I think about is she's basically saying that if there was a family or groups of family in our congregation, in our community, that through the work of Paul were imprisoned or murdered, what would it be like five, ten years down the road for this man to walk into our midst and try to teach us scripture? It'd be tough, wouldn't it? And for him... You know, how would he have to address you guys? And what would his position and his attitude? You're a little bit small for that. You're a little bit big for that. 
what would his position or his attitude or what, his, what would his demeanor need to be in order for you to really see, okay, this is a transformed man? Huh? Humble. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps. Someone who shows real remorse is broken. And, it, and you can see why Paul in his letter to the Corinthians is like, guys, let me, I'm not bragging here, but let me show you what I've had to suffer because I joined, our, joined this movement. And you can see how the Corinthians might look at that and say, yeah, he did kill people that I know, but man, he has paid for it, hasn't he? This guy has been through the ringer. I might listen to him. I might really take this letter to heart. So... Fascinating character. Paul is arguably one of my top three, maybe five, you know, three to five favorite characters in the Bible. So fascinating, and, and I, I can't wait to meet the man at the resurrection and just to sit down with him and ask him tons and tons of questions. So. Yeah, yeah. I count all of this as, as a loss compared to knowing the excellency of Christ. So your homework this week before we close in prayer is to read Acts chapter 10. Read Acts chapter 10. We're going to be introduced to some new characters here. And um, I want to give you a homework assignment dealing a little bit more specifically with Acts 10 verse 14. If you're writing this down, Acts 10 14, there's two words used for unclean in Acts 10 14. And they're in Greek. And I want you Torah scholars out there to tell me, come next week, see if you can figure out what those two Greek words are and what that means in terms of what Peter did and did not eat. Okay, so you come prepared for that. It's really fascinating, so you can, you can do this week. So read Acts 10 and tell me the two Greek words used for unclean in Acts chapter 10, verse 14. Let's close in prayer. Abba Father, thank you for men like Paul, who you chose as an instrument to send the gospel to the nations, if it were not for his obedience and his brokenness and his repentance, we would not be sitting in this room learning about the history of our way, learning about your scriptures and learning about your desire and love for humanity. And may we have a faith like Paul. And may our zeal always be kept in check. May we share and evangelize in a way that is honoring of Yeshua. Do it with love and humility and brokenness. And we pray all these things in the matchless name of our Savior, Yeshua. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to say, I guess we kind of